Let us uh, turn to a passage of scripture that we've been looking at last Sunday. I'm very excited how uh, the, the, the weeks that we have leading up to fall conference will be actually quite crucial and quite a, a, um, a pathway that I believe that the Lord is leading us in preparation for something that he's going to do. I believe that God has given to each one of us a territory, a land, so to speak, an area in which God wants to cause fruitfulness and people to be impacted by the salvation and healing and deliverance from God. You may ask, then, why is it not happening in my land? Why is it still not happening? We spoke about that last week, about how there is a barrier that intercession is actually meant to break through. And if you're not experiencing too much in the places that God has placed you, the locations that God has placed you, may I suggest to you that there is a work of intercession and prayer that is actually going to break this. And so what we are doing is to begin to pick up the stronger weapons, the heavier weapons of war, to be able to, 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 um, to break through. We spoke about the fact that knock and keep on knocking is a continuous thing until the door is open. And so I believe that we, in this period of time, may have been experiencing some kind of oppression, some kind of heaviness, some kind of uh, spiritual attack and all that. Don't worry, that's actually a good sign because it means that we are coming against a, a door that meant to be open. Amen? In, during fall conference, I believe that the Lord is will visit us with something that is uh, crucial that will make a difference in the way in which God causes our spheres of uh, activity and influence what we sometimes refer to as the land that God has put us in to be affected greatly. Uh, please turn with me to Second Kings chapter 5. And we were looking at one such person who was snatched away from a land by marauding Syrians or Arameans and uh, was taken as a slave into the land of Syria and sold in the market probably to Naaman, captain of the, Lord, the, the king of Aram. Or Aram is, other, is another name for Syria. Padan Aram is also Syria. Yeah? So sometimes your Bible will call it Aram and other Bibles may call it Syria. But I think... Uh, we are talking about the same place. And uh, the slave girl found herself uh, by very, very unfortunate circumstances taken captive, taken captive and, and, uh, and uh, stranded in a land that was not her own as a slave. And yet we saw last week, about how, we saw how God was able to unquench her, cause her not to be um, fettered by her situation, but become a person who was spiritually decisive. And sometimes what we, 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 we have to ask is, what are the spiritually decisive things that cause our land, our lives, to be transformed, and to be fruitful? There's a lot of things that we can do that are not spiritually effectual or spiritually decisive. They may be good, they may be nice, and they might be kind, and they may be actually smart, but they're not actually spiritually decisive. And so as we look at this, uh, the thing that we'll be looking at is what makes spiritual decisiveness? 
Yeah? Now, when I use the word decisive, I don't mean being a decisive person. I don't mean that as a personality thing where you're kind of A-type and you just like, just go for it and just bang on. I don't mean that as decisive. Decisive has a lot to do, the way I'm using it, is whether it determines things, does it make things happen, whether it's effective, whether it's spiritually effective, and does the effect that it, it's, it's, it's doing really count. We can be doing things that are um, effective, but they may not be decisive. They may not make a whole lot of difference in other people's lives. They may not make any difference in heaven. So when we're talking about something that's decisive, it's almost as if we're talking about something that will decide matters, that will actually cause spiritually significant things to happen. And one of the things that I've, I've uh, been praying about is this matter of spiritual decisiveness. I felt that the Lord dropped that phrase into my heart. It may not be the most uh, attractive phrase, but it, it kind of clarified to me that there is a way in which God wants to lead us into a certain spiritual decisiveness. You may not be the A-type person. You may be a very quiet person. You may be reticent. You may be actually more retiring than anything else. But you can be doing spiritually decisive things. And this girl, this slave girl, did something that's really decisive. In the midst of all this, she just said one little phrase. Oh, if only my master can be with the prophet that's in Israel, he would cure him. That was decisive because it changed everything. But it took for her, the one who's at the bottom of the totem pole, a certain boldness, a simple boldness that caused her to be unfettered from all the self-consciousness and all the considerations of fear. Yeah? She stepped up. And for that moment, her spirit became huge and decisive. Amen? So we spoke about this, and we spoke about the, the need to not quench the Holy Spirit. So we're going to go into another point that is in, found in this chapter. So let's have a look at it. We'll read it from verse 1. Now Naaman, I'm reading from the NASB, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior but he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. I'm sure he said, she said it with much more heart and much more emotion than I just read. I wish my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Something like that. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. And the king of Aram, who was very powerful at the time, remember that the uh, Aramean was the lingua franca of uh, international uh, uh, discourse, right? This international intercourse. When the king of Aram said, Go now, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. As we know, he need not have done that. He need not have gone through all that trouble. He brought the letter to the king of Israel saying, And now, as this letter comes to you, behold, 
I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? And consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. He was very, very... Uh, Israel and, um, and uh, Syria were having a lot of tension, especially along the border. And these raids by Arameans were not helping things. And so the king of Israel was very, very jumpy, very jittery. He thought this is what you call a casus belly, a cause for war. Yeah? And, uh, and he was, he was th- thinking, yeah, there you go. That's, we're going to have war. He's, he's actually um, um, uh, fishing for a fight. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes and that he sent word to the king said, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. We spoke about this last week. I believe that for all of us in our land, as we encounter non-Christians, people that don't know, don't know the Lord, I believe that God has caused his word and his voice to be heard in VCF. And I found that in VCF, when, we, when, when different people bring their friends, their loved ones and all that, and they bring them up for prayer, invariably, people have found that God spoke to them so accurately, so un, um, uncannily, that you can tell your friends who are rending their garments who are in a terrible place, come, God has something for you. Not that our church is anything special, but the Lord cares for you and He will speak to you. Amen? I want to encourage you to to, to go by what this prophet says. There is not one prophet, but there are sons and daughters of the prophets, which is all of us here. And so what's crucial, it is incumbent upon us for us to be able to learn how to hear the, the Lord gives him time so that we can be that very distinctive thing that the land is crying out for. Where is your God? Yeah? So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. I like the way in which the writer of Second Kings just added that. And so Naaman came with his horses and his chariots as if he's such a big shot. Oh, Naaman, you're such a big shot with your horses and chariots. And so the, the writer, you know, there's, there's humor everywhere in the Old Testament. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, wink, wink, and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious <coughs> and went away and said, behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpa, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? What's this dinky Jordan here? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. He was completely offended. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, Five, Father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down 
and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. He was not only, not only healed, but he, time was reversed. That is, a, that is a creative miracle. That is not just a patching, not just a providence. It's a miracle. Because time, the arrow of time goes this way and not backwards. So what we have is a distinctive kind of ministry that was not of this world. It was spiritually decisive in the sense that it made a huge difference in Naaman's life. Okay, it was not of this world. This is what we're going for. We are going for that, right? And so, verse 14, So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Now, he, when he returned to the man of God with all his company, and came and stood before him, he said, Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth and in Israel, but in Israel. So please, take a present from your servant now. But verse 16, but he said, that's Elisha, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. Just like Abraham has said this, so that you will know that this is of God and I don't want it to be confused with any kind of human commerce or any transaction that's human. That there is no God that I know that, that that you will know that there is no God in all Israel, but in in all the earth, but in Israel. So please take a present from the servant now. He said in verse seven, "As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing." And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Elisha was adamant. He was no softy. Naaman said, "If not, please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth, for your servant will no longer." offer burnt offerings, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. In this, in this manner, may the Lord, Yahweh, so he's mentioning, when you see L-O-R-D in capital letters, it's Yahweh or some form of, of, the, of the name of God, right? So to distinguish that God from every other God, yeah? In this matter, may the Lord, Yahweh, pardon your servant when my servant master goes into the house of Rimon, one of the gods, to worship there, and he leans on my hand because he's, a, he's, he's like the right-hand man. And I bow myself in the house of Ramon. When I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, Elisha said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him some distance. What I want to just say before we go into the, the whole passage is, you look at the, the effect upon Naaman. Naaman was truly converted. Don't you think? Naaman was so converted that he says, I will not worship any other god. He was not just a client. He was not a person who kind of had his felt need met. Something, and I'm going to use that word many times, decisive had taken place in his spirit. So much so that he was not just a person who took the blessing, but he was converted. In fact, he was so converted that he didn't say, I'm just going to worship God in Syria and in principle, I'll just follow the, 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 uh, and give a, uh, allegiance to, to God. No, actually, I want to be particular in, in my conversion. I want s some new loads of earth from Israel, this low-down, dinkum, kind of podunk place, to be taken with me so that I will stand on this ground, the particular ground of Israel, and worship Yahweh. 
Isn't that amazing? That is the kind of conversion that we are talking about. Not the kind of conversion in which people come and find that the church is amenable to their needs. But it's a conversion in which he is not only in principle a Christian and sort of contextualizing it all over the place, but he's actually saying, I want this earth. I want this particular earth. And I want to stand on this earth and I will worship no other God. Now, that is the kind of conversion I'm excited about. And in your land, in our lands, I believe God's wanting to do that. How do we experience such spiritual decisiveness? That's the question. What makes conversions that many people say they are Christians, right? What makes that not decisive? The lives don't actually change. The supernatural is not there. They figure out things, how to obey the Bible in the best way that they can and try to figure it out in such a way that they are in analogous to uh, business or, or, or success and all that. And we find, yeah, success, Christianity, good. God gives success. God gives prosperity. God gives this. Let's go merge it together. And How can I have the Christian form of this? No, actually, Naaman is not talking about that. There is no analogy. There is no analogy. There is there's, there's no... No, no, no parity. There's no point of connection between the thing that God does and the thing that is paralleled in the, in the, in the world. Does that make sense? What's spiritually decisive cannot be compared. And what happens is that we have a Christianity that is what I would call so much like the, 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 the kind of the fulfilling of felt needs in the world that you can't actually distinguish it. It's not spiritually decisive. And so what we are looking for is something in our land that is a genuine, authentic thing of God that cannot be compared, cannot, cannot, cannot be mistaken for anything else. You cannot read Peter Drucker and find, huh, that's what the Bible talks about. In some ways, yes. But you, when you look at the genuine article, you find that there is nothing like it. There's no words, there's no business words, there's no success words that can even, even come, come close to it because it's that distinctive. It's of a completely different frame, of a different order of creation. Amen? Let's talk about this, okay? Let's go back to verse, um, verse 10. Oh, let's go from verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. That's totally offensive. Totally offensive. He didn't even come out to greet, to greet him. It's totally offensive. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and he went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of, the, of Yahweh, his God. And so at that point, Naaman's thinking of, of Yahweh as another local deity, right? His God. And wave his hand over the place and cure the leper just like we do in, in Syria, just like the rest of the world does. Right? 
So he's coming with a certain frame of mind, right? He's thinking of Yahweh as like, like something, like something we've seen, right? right? And so what will happen is that friends of yours will come into your contact with you with Christianity and they will have that kind of think, okay, it's like this, right? It's like this, it's like this. But God wants to reveal himself to him, to them, in such a way that he's distinct, much better. Are not Abba, so, so he says, I thought he would wave his hand over the place and cure the, the leper. Are not Abana and Fafa, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. The first thing I want to say is this. There's an offense that gets at the problem. The offense reveals the root of the problem. Now, we as Christians can sometimes be so taken in by forming a bridge to, the, to Naaman that Naaman can feel comfortable with us that Christianity is not like that kind of radical, weird stuff, but that it is like something I can relate to. It's relatable. But I want to put it to you that Naaman's reaction to Elisha was furious. It got to his pride. It got to his frame of mind. It got to his nationalism. It got to his sense of him being an important person with all his horses and chariots. It got to that, right? And Elisha is hitting him bang on because he knows if that is not dealt with, you will, he will never be healed. Now, here's the thing. We are hoping that people will come to Christ. But we are hoping that they will come to Christ because the Christ that we give them is amenable to them. It's amenable to them, and we are amenable to them as well. And so what you have is people who can subscribe to the Christian thing and find that it's like, as long as it, 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 it comports with my own frame, my culture, my frame, my, my, my presuppositions, all that, then I can accept it. And the Christian world works really hard to study and understand the non-Christian mind. We work very hard to do that. That's not bad. It's good. But we know nothing of the mind of God. So because of that, we're constantly amenable, we're constantly accommodating, we're constantly doing something. And what Elisha refused to do is to get into Naaman's frame of mind. If he tried to get into Naaman's frame of mind and tried to work within Naaman's frame of mind, he would have got something that was something Naamanish, Something sort of Aramean, spirit, and Israelite, and, and something like that. It would not be distinctive, it would not be radically different. It would not have the spiritual decisiveness of a supernatural, miraculous, God-cross thing. And so I realized that sometimes we can be in the land for a long time and find ourselves completely ineffective. And we've tried everything that we can to be relatable. We enter into the frame, we study them, we become like that. We are very, very, very good at our moves. But at the same time, it's not spiritually decisive. We know all the, the memes and everything. We know all the language. We have the skinny jeans. We've got everything. We talk cool. We talk, do everything. And we are also respectful. 
And we relate, we, 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 we distance ourselves from any kind of traditional fuddy-duddy Christianity. And we do all that. And it's spiritually not decisive. It makes people more comfortable with us. But you can spend years and years with them and it's not decisive. Now, I'm not saying that suddenly you ought to need to be awkward and if culture is going this way, you just go that way. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying this, that there is a core thing. You miss the whole point if you don't come out of that frame and when you domesticize that frame of mind, that layman's frame of mind. So let's have a look at that, okay? Because that's something that's really, really important. If Naaman doesn't have something that is spiritually decisive, he would not be healed. You would be nice. He would like you. He would think you're great. He'll think you're not like all those other fuddy-duddy Christians, but he will not be healed. And so I believe that something has, has to happen here. And what Elisha did is something that I'm not sure whether we, are, we dare to do or not. And he said, go, not even sending an, an, an issue. He hit the problem, he let the problem erupt, and he says, go down to the Jordan and do it, and dip in, not once, not twice, not three, but seven times complete, until, until it's done. And he let that word stand and take its own consequences. He didn't try to manage it. He didn't try to kind of make it, make it, make it more palatable. He just said it. Because part of the offense was the healing. And what we're trying to do often in the, in the Christian world is that we're trying to heal without the offense. Believe me, I'm all for that. But there are certain things that God wants to do. And for that to happen, He has to get at the root of the problem. For those of you who are doing 4Q, it's question two. You don't get question two. You can keep on adding on things that you want to do to, 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 to apply the Word of God, but the root of the problem is still dealt, not dealt with. It won't be decisive. It will make you feel better, but it won't, it won't result in the supernatural thing. It will result in people liking you more or being more amenable to Christianity, more open to Christianity. And that's, that's of value. That's not bad. But if you're wanting healing... When you're in a situation in which this person, perhaps a really important person to you, comes and needs healing, what you want to do is to ask God, what does it take for a genuine healing to take place? Not just part way. I, when, when I had cancer, one of the things that became very strong to me is that when the surgery happens, there needed to be around the prostate what you call clear margins. They need to be clear. That means that there need to be no cells that left the prostate and, got fl- and, and, and flew around the, 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 the rest of the body. Even if they're really, really small cells, you can't. Everything had to be taken. Everything had to be taken. And it was not enough for, uh, for most of it to be taken. 99.9%, everything had to be taken. And I understand that, there, that there's a way in which we can tend to take well, average 97, 8%, 8, 89%. It's quite, quite good. We are now accustomed to having 1% Christianity and then 
culturally contextualized. Yeah? Contextualized is good. But if it is not God, and it doesn't bring forth the spiritually decisive thing, then it's, 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 it's of, of limited use. I, I, don't, I don't know whether it's of no use, but I think it's of some, some, maybe some use, but it's of limited use. That's not what we're going for. That's not what we're going for. And so, so he had to, he had to not accommodate this, this celebrity. He had to not accommodate this person. There was a time in my church where um, I was privileged to have one of the fathers of modern Malaysia come to my church. He was a complete non-Christian. He was a complete non-Christian. And he was highly respected. He was very well known. There are five men in, in, the, in the history of Malaysia before and, and since independence uh, who, are this, who everybody knows. And he was one of them. And he came to my church and he had a problem because uh, his, his mistress had a, a stroke and was paralyzed. And so what happened was that he asked, asked us, can you heal her? Now, I could tell him, well, we can pray and see what happens, play safe, right? But I could see that in his eyes, he needed to see something. And he was looking around at the people around me. He was looking around. He was wanting to see whether there was anything in my eyes that showed something more than my own Chinese skin. To show that there was something more than my own intellect, intellect or my own observation. He wanted to see whether there was a spark that he had not seen before. And thank God, at that time, I just felt conviction rise up within me and said, God's going to heal her. I just told him that. Now, if I go into another frame and someone tells me, you, do a, you are reckless. Yeah, you are reckless. I would say, yeah. But something is missing in our paradigm we don't realize that there is an objective presence of God. And if you are close enough to Him, and you're not reckless, that objective voice of God is as sure and as real as anything that Mary would say to me today. And so I told him, she'll be healed. So, she, so he brought her to our church, and she was um, wheeled in on a, on a wheelchair. And we prayed for him, prayed, prayed for her. But just as we were praying, the Lord spoke to me and he said, this is a very proud man. And he had reason to be proud. And uh, someone who was praying just told him, you have to humble yourself. You have to humble yourself. This is not something that Asians would say to an older person especially a father of Malaysia, Papa Malaysia. Yeah? You will never say that. Never say that. It's actually wrong. You never talk to elders that way. Yeah, those of you who are, come from my culture or similar, you understand that. But this person had to just blurt it out. You need to humble yourself. And this man 
I could see all the aggressiveness that he needed to make Malaysia happen. And there was a moment of tension. And then he simmered down and didn't say anything. We prayed for her and she was healed. She was healed. She got out of the, she got out of the, 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 the wheelchair. She was wobbly, very wobbly, but she was healed. And his heart melted. Later, there was a relationship between him and her. She was his mistress. And we had to tell, her, tell him, even though he is a rarely respected person, with all our due deference and all that, we had to tell him, you have to. You have to give her up. Your wife is waiting for you. She's been waiting for you. And just because you've been having that mistress for 30 years, that doesn't mean your wife doesn't have a right to you. And he left that woman. We didn't wait till a long, long time. There was some waiting period. There was. But that was the issue. Now with Naaman, there was no, no response from Elisha in, his, in which he said, let's get him accustomed to Christianity, know the love of God, and then after that we will tell him to do these more difficult discipleship stuff. There was none of that. What happened with Naaman was decisive. He didn't wait till he was uh, no longer a baby Christian. He just was given the answer to the root of his problem. And his frame had to be broken. The shell had to be broken. Amen? The true ministry is not the accommodation of all Christian things and our own human love with the the requirements and expectations that the world has, it has to do with the breaking of a shell. That shell is actually the shell of sin, the shell of what First John calls the world, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh. That has to be broken. If it's not broken, you cannot really expect too many miracles in these lives. It's not spiritually decisive. You can do all that you can. You can massage the shell. You can paint the shell. You can love the shell. You can keep saying God loves you. You can say you're accepted. You, are, you can say all that. You are not condemned. But the shell will remain. And everything will bounce off the shell. It will not be the spiritually decisive. It will be something, but it's not spiritually decisive. So I want to put it to you. Have you come to a point in your Christian life in which you're just fed up of being fed up, of being ineffectual in your land? Have you come to a point where you're ready to say, look, hang this thing I want something real, and I want my friends, my loved ones, who I love enough to want something real, to not pussyfoot around. Okay? I'm not talking about being un- unkind. I'm not talking about being in your face. I'm, not talking about, I'm just talking about the fact that if God wants to deal with the root of the problem, you have to be there with that, or else you are not necessary in this equation. Okay? And so what happened was that um, uh, Elisha said this, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away. Behold, I thought, he will surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the place. Are not Abana and Fafa, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And, 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 and there's this reaction I want to put it to you, if we are going to be effective in the land, you need to be ready for such reactions. 
you need you and I need to be ready to expect such rebuffs and such such offenses because not that we're looking for it, but because of the fact that if you are not, you will do everything you can to avoid that. You will slink away. You will miss it. You will not be spiritually decisive because of the fact that that you are not emotionally prepared for that. You're not prepared for the celebrity to not like you. You're not prepared for this very, very important person to, 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 to criticize you. Anybody else? Yes. Little people? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. They can criticize me. But not this important person. And so because of that, I feel that that's really important for us to be able to come to a place where we are winsome, we are loving, we are kind and soft. Always a soft answer turning away wrath. Not trying to provoke a fight, but being able to say, this is what the Lord says because I'm from Him. I'm not from you. I'm not from your frame. And so what happens is that Christians work really hard to get into that frame and miss out. Now, that's a really interesting point because look at Naaman's logic. Here's Naaman's logic. I thought that this principle was at work. The principle was this. A man of God comes, here's the dynamics, brings his presence in, and the Spirit of God will somehow use him as an avatar or as a representative of God, and through the man of God, something will happen. So it's really important that because God uses the man of God or the woman of God, that man of God should be there. Number one. Number two, I get it. Okay, we need to be baptized. Baptism in the water was not something that, is, that was unique to Israel. It was in, the, in all, the, all the cultures that were around there in the ancient Near East. Baptisms were everywhere. Okay, so even in Syria. So he said, I get it, I get it. But we have a good river. Right? So because of that, what I need is to understand the principle of what Elisha is saying. And if I get the principle, okay, baptism, okay, we understand baptism is a washing away from all sins, washing away from the old life, and then we do that. And then I can do it in my own way. So what he was doing was that he was taking the principle, he has abstracting the principle, okay, the principle is this, I've got to have the man, I've got to have the man of God. The man of God is very important because God doesn't choose everybody. Secondly, we need river, we need baptism. Okay, here's what Naaman does. He takes what Elisha is saying and he abstracts a principle out of that. Does that make sense? Now, that's what we do. We take the Bible, contextualize it, we abstract the principle, and we say, okay, I can do it according to my own way. All right? Because it's the principle that counts. But what he didn't realize is that he did not understand that things happen when we obey the command of God the Lord which is specific, which is personal and particular and situational. There was something much more important than the principle he was deriving from it. The the, the thing that was happening was this. God is speaking to you now. He may not tell other people to get baptized 
And that principle not, may not even be operative in those things. But God is in front of you now. He's telling you, do this now. If you miss the time, you may not get healed. You've got to do it now. You've got to do it when the Holy Spirit is telling you. Because if you don't, you may come back and say, oh yeah, I get the principle. Now I'm going to try to do it. And it's missed. Because the, the, the point about it is not the principle that you can abstract from the thing that, that, that Elisha is doing. He's not giving a teaching. He's giving a command that is time-sensitive. The thing about decisiveness has to do with the fact that we don't take the principles of God, take it around with us, and we say, okay, I'm going to try to make it work in my own, my own situation. No, you, re- you respond immediately. Amen? So today when there was a word about healing and all that, those who responded immediately were doing the right thing. You don't say, okay, Jose got a word for stomach. Okay, go home. I'm going to respond to it when I go home. It may happen, but the most important operative thing is not the principle of what what was being said, but the immediacy of response to God. Because when God comes to you, He doesn't spout out a principle. He says, do this. It's you and me now. You and me now. When I'm talking to you and I'm, and I'm um, nudging you and leading you, you may have all kinds of doubts about it, but just try it out because I'm here. I'm the most important one. Your healing, the principle, the, the, the prudence with which you ex- exercise is not the most important thing. You may do it, you may blurt it out, you may do it in the most uh, awkward way, but the most important thing is that you respond to me in real time now. Because God is a personal God, not a principle-forming f- God only. Does that make sense? If you, take the, if you go by this, take the principle, take it on, along yourselves, and in your own time, decide how you're going to contextualize it, you may miss the immediacy of the moment that God has for you. That's why as Christians... We can't be Christians outside of the action that's happening. So what God wants to do in our land is to cause us to be sensitive to Him. Make mistakes, maybe, but be sensitive when He says, give money to this person or come, come, come out and, and, and share what I've done for you with this person. Do it right now. And what you have is an immediacy of presence. Or else it's not present, it's past. You want the presence of God, you've got the past of God. So what God wants to do is give you the presence of God. Amen? All right, don't be so serious, okay? This is fun, this is fun. actually. It can be done. You make mistakes, it's all right, it's okay. God will cover it for you and He will help you. Don't be dumb, but, but, but do your best. Be sincere, all right? Just like the, the, the little slave girl. Does it make sense? I like what T.G. Jake says. He says, uh, you know, my mother, she just... Just, God told her, in your money, just play around with it. That's not mean being callous, but he says, like, just see what God will do. You may make, make mistakes, but, but have a certain freedom to be able to do that. Amen? Now, so what I want to tell you is, what I want to say is this, there's a way in which we can be not spiritually decisive because of the fact that, that we are abstractive. That means we abstract the principle and we do it on our own time. Yeah, and so what? Um, what 
um, Naaman was doing was that he was taking the principle, okay, river, okay, got it, okay, I've got to do river, okay, uh, baptism, baptism, okay, I'll do it. But in Abana, not Jordan, what the heck? Jordan's nothing, right? I want to contextualize it. Contextualizing is good, but the point is that when you lose the immediacy of what, what God's saying, you lose the essential relationality of any commandment that God wants, wants to do. The relationality of spiritual decisiveness. Okay, let's carry on. So he turned and went away in a rage, and his servant said, came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself. The, th- the next, thing, next point I want to make is this. The things that God asks us to do are not hard things. They're not difficult things. They're just offensive to us. But it's very easy. And what the servants, servants are so smart, they're so, so wise to be able to tell Naaman, you know what? You just have to do this. If the man of God asks you to go climb a mountain and then skydive out of that, you would have done it. You're a mighty man. Good for you. Yay! Chariots, horses. Yeah! But he's only asking you to do something quite inane, repetitive. Just do it. And it offended him, but it was easy to do. And here's one sign that God is leading you. He's going to ask you to do something that's not difficult, but there may be some things that of pride, there's something of our own uh, selfishness that can, or our fears that make it harder psychologically than it really is in, a, in essence. And what God is saying is this, if you take away the offense and humble yourself and surrender yourself, he will give you grace to do that. And he did. He dunked himself seven times all the way, all the way. And he was healed. Amen? All right, there's a way in which we can sometimes be that way with our, our application. I'm trying to get In 1842, um, in China, we had the Nanking Wars, the Nanjing Wars. Nanjing Wars came about because the Chinese had allowed the Occidentals or the Westerners to cultivate opium because it was a great, uh, it's a great um, product. It was very p- profitable and all that. But in Nanjing, Commissioner Lin was very concerned. He was a sort of a righteous kind of a kind of a kind of person, but kind of how do I say it politely? A stick in the mud. He was a bit of a stick in the mud, prudish. And so he looked at what the British were doing in getting involved in the opium trade and, he's, and he dealt with them in a very proud way, a high-handed way. And he says, you guys, we are going to stop that. And the British were very powerful at that time and they went to war against China. So Starting from 1842, you had the Opium Wars 1 and 2. What happened was that the Opium Wars showed how weak China was, even though China was the middle kingdom. Yeah? Zhongguo, which means middle kingdom. Zhong is middle. Guo is country. Or, yeah. 
And so China had always looked at the West as if they were inferior. Right? In fact, there's a letter that's very interesting about how he replies, the, 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 the emperor of China replies uh, to King, I think it's King George, and he says, if you want to learn from us about all the things of culture, we realize that even though you are inferior, we will give you grace to learn these things. But you need to behave yourself. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And so what happened was that during the Opium Wars, China lost badly, very badly. And later on, other countries came in, Western countries came in, and they fought, and there were conflicts because China was so prissy, so proud, and so aware of their Middle Kingdom status that they treated the other other countries, Germany, uh, France, America, and all that, with utter disdain. And when they went to war, they lost and lost and lost and lost and lost and lost until they were completely gone. And then the Qing dynasty was, was the, the dynasty at that time. Emperor, the, the emperor said, we must do something about it. We must learn how to change. Okay, we must change. So everybody says, yes, we must change. We must change. But the change was never decisive. You have the things called the uh, 100 days uh, reform or the 100 days revolution in which they tried to change their technology. They tried to change the different ways from what they observe of the West to try to maybe kind of emulate a little bit. But the deepest Confucian conservatism that they had was not taken care of. And so everything they did failed. It failed. So you have the Boxer Revolution, the Taiping Revolution, all that. And completely that. And they were not decisive. Until 1911, when uh, Chiang Kai-shek and Sun Yat-sen brought about the National uh, uh, um, Revolution. And then later on, Mao Zedong and the Red Revolution. But there's a way in which we can sometimes enter into the frame of the one that you are wanting to minister to, not realizing that God comes from outside of that and, and not actually be dealing with the basic problems. Now, I realize dealing with basic problems is sometimes difficult, awkward, and painful. But what God has for us is courage that He will give to us when we know that we don't have it. I come from a family and from a culture in which Dealing with these things is the hardest thing for me. But when I see that people need to experience real, authentic power of God change, I don't want to waste time anymore. I don't want to waste time taking care of the, the, the peripheral things and making everybody happy. What we need is a deep change from God. Amen? And that is why I want to, want to say to you that if God is speaking to you about specific things, do it all the way. And I want to say seven times. Amen? 